for us. But we're going to continue this morning in the series we began last week called First Fruits. And as we talked about last week, that so much of what we are and what God desires from us is not about the stuff, it's about our hearts. It's about really who we are in relationship to Him. And as we said last week, it's so possible within our relationship with God to go through the motions of everything. You could be a very generous tither. You could give of all of your time at every outreach. You could be very talented and maybe even play on the worship team, which if you have any talent and want to play on the worship team, come and see us. We'd love to make you a part of that. But doing all of those things, you could do any and all of that well without truly giving your heart to God. It's possible to just go through the motions, but the reality is once we give our hearts to God, then out of that desire, out of that wellspring of life that God calls it, we can begin to do those things as a form of blessing to God, honoring God with the first fruits of who we are. So that's really been the heart behind this as we're in this study. But it's all pivoting on Proverbs 3, nine, which says to honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And, and here's what we, we talk about this a lot, this idea of covenantal language that God uses in scripture. And this is one of those points where God is using covenantal language where he says that if you honor me with your first fruits, then I will pour out blessing. And we see this all through scripture where God says, If you would put me first, then I would bless you so much you wouldn't even be able to contain it. Now, how many of you would love to have a blessing in your life that's too big to contain? How about it, right? Okay, praise the Lord. Yeah, well, this is the covenantal aspect of what God says. It comes out of a surrendered heart, the first fruits of what we've got. But so often we feel like we don't really have much. And that's my question for you today is what do you have? What do you have that God could use? What is in your life, in your possession, in your heart that God could really take and bless? And we're going to look at a portion of scripture in 2 Kings chapter 4 where God does something miraculous with something small and turns it into something big. So if you want to read along with me, you can in your Bibles or on the screens. We're in 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read verses 42 through 44. It says that one day, a man from Baal Shalisha brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain and 20 loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. Now just pause right there. The original Hebrew there for first grain is the Hebrew word for first fruits. He's saying this was my, my offering to the Lord for my first fruits. Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat it. What? The servant exclaimed. Feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, Give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says. Everyone, say everyone. Everyone will eat and there will even be some left over. And when they gave it to the people, there was plenty for all and some left over, just as the Lord had promised. Now, how many of you like leftovers? It depends on what it is, right? I'm often amazed that the leftovers that sit in our refrigerator, they grow a certain species. That's not, that's not tasty. No, God says he's going to cause growth here in what I want to call miraculous provision. And in fact, there are five places in scripture where we see 
a miraculous provision where God takes something small and turns it into something big. So the first of which is found in Elisha's predecessor, which was kind of his mentor, a man named Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we see that Elijah goes to a woman at, at Zarephath and there's a famine going on and she has nothing to eat and she's literally at the gate gathering sticks and she tells Elijah, I'm about to go home and I'm about to take the last little bit of flour and oil that I have. I'm going to make bread for me and my son and then we're going to die. Elijah, being the man of God that he is, he goes, okay, that's fine. But before you do that, would you make me a cake? This is literally what he says to her. But then he says, you don't need to worry because God's going to bless you and God is going to cause that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil to sustain you throughout the entire famine. You're going to be okay. Then in 2 Kings, we see Elisha, who came after Elijah, right? Right before this that we just read, there's the widow of the prophets. And she goes to Elisha and she says, my husband, who was among the prophets, he has died. And now his creditors are coming and they're going to take away my two sons. What can I do? And Elisha says, don't worry. Go home, gather as many pots and vats and, and everything that you can and take some oil and start to pour it in. And God's going to fill every single one of those things that you have. And lo and behold, Behold, she goes home and God fills it. We have the story that we just read in, four, in chapter 4. Then in Matthew and John, we see probably something you're a little more familiar with is the time when Jesus feeds the 4,000 and then Jesus feeds the 5,000. Again, taking something that is small and multiplying it to bless people. And I, just as a side note here, all commentators agree that the wording used here during those miraculous uh, provisions was that it was just the men. And so when we read that Jesus read the 4,000, it's literally kind of better understood for us to say 4,000 families, 5,000 families out of what he was doing. But these miraculous provisions that God has, every one of them has something right at the center of them, a question that comes up right before the miracle. It's what do you have? What do you have? How many of you know that when you have something, it might only be this big, but if you're willing to put it into God's hands, he could make it enormous. He could really do something awesome with it. And so the woman at Zarephath, she's like, oh, my son and I, we're going to die. I've just made do all this. And Elijah looks at her and says, what do you have? She says, all I've got is some oil and some flour. And he says, God can do something with that. Elisha, he comes across the woman who her, her son is going to be taken away by the creditors. She doesn't know what he's going to, what do you have? And she says, all I have is a little bit of oil. God can do something with that. This man who comes to Elisha and he says, hey, I just wanted to, you know, give you a little bit of bread and a little bit. I mean, let's just do a little bit of math here, right? He's, it says that he had a sack of grain. I mean, that's not a dump truck full. It's a sack. He said he had 20 loaves of barley bread. Now, I don't know if you're picturing like you know, D'Onofrio's bread, but think the smaller, okay? Little tiny loaves. And he's like, everybody's going to get, that's just not enough food. But he says, well, what do you have? God can use that. We know that at least one of, one of these times where Jesus fed miraculously, the disciples were saying, you know, God, you know, what are we supposed to do? Jesus says, feed them. And they're like, what? Feed them? If we saved all of our wages for an entire year, we wouldn't have enough money to feed this many people. And he looks at them and he says, what do you have? All we have is a little boy over here who's got some fish and some bread. God says, I can use that. I can use that. And listen, miraculous provision scripturally is always preceded by a moment where somebody takes something very small and says, God, use this for your glory. 
Take this little thing in my hand that seems so insignificant and use it for your glory. And two of these times, God uses it to bless the individual and the other three times, He uses it to bless the community. God can use whatever small thing you have for His glory, for good, for the purpose of blessing others. But it takes that willingness to see it and understand it for exactly what it is. But here's what this man who brought this gift to to Elisha says in verse 43. I mean, he's like incredulous, all right? I want you to think like if you just told your teenager to go rewire the house, okay? And they're like, what? I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, also clean your room. What? I don't know how to do that. So he says, feed it to, the, to all the people. And this guy's like, what? Feed a hundred people with only this? He's like, Elisha, are you nuts? What is he really saying? He's like, Elisha, this is not enough. It's not enough. I can't feed all these people with this tiny little bit. It's not enough. And listen, we, we get caught up in this quite a bit, right? Because we find ourselves constantly thinking that what we have is insignificant, you know, and again, I really want us to focus on this because I know as we talk about first fruits, especially looking at Proverbs chapter three, where it talks about honoring God with our wealth, understanding we talked last week, this is really a heart issue. It doesn't have anything to do with the time, talent, and resource. It has to do with our hearts. And in a hard heart, we get to the place of thinking to ourselves, well, what I have to offer is just not enough. It's insignificant. It doesn't really make any difference. What does it matter if I give a little bit of my time? It's insignificant. What does it matter if I give my talent? You know, maybe you, you have some capability that you're doing, but you tell yourself, you know, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not going to affect anybody else. God says, I could take that little bit and use it if you just give it to me. Perhaps it's of your resources. You know, you look at yourself and you're like, hey, I, I know about this idea of giving back to God and, and blessing him and giving tithes and offerings, but the money I would give would be so insignificant. What is it even? It's not about any of those things. It's about your heart. God says, that's the first fruit that I'm after, but we're constantly caught in this place of thinking that it's not enough. And really, from a cultural standpoint, we live with this entire battle inside of us all the time because everything that we're looking at is just not enough. We buy the biggest house that we can possibly find, right? But we still have a little bit of room after watching HGTV to think, I know what we could put over there. You know what this house needs? indoor pool come on praise the lord right that's what we need right hot tub breakfast nook pantry anything we just come up with all these things why it's just not enough we we get a car right and this has been happening for years and i'm grateful i mean i'm not i'm not complaining here but i had a few cars when i was a teenager from the 80s right i had a couple of camaros from the 80s and they'd be like this camaro has 185 horsepower and people are like whoa my wife's grocery getter has 315. It would have smoked my Camaro. And we've always got to have more. We always got to have more. I've got a job. I'm making, I'm making, I've got to make more. I've got to have more. I've got to have more. I've got to have more. Whatever I have is just not enough. It's insignificant. You know, there's a portion of scripture where David has an encounter with a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan, after David has sinned and had an affair with Bathsheba, comes to David and he says something to him that's really startling to me. But he reminds David, he says, David, you were nothing but a shepherd boy. You literally had nothing. 
You came from nothing. You had no future. But God raised you up to be the king over all of Israel. And then he tells him this. He wants you to know this, David, that if it had not been enough, he would have given you more. You know, we sometimes in our pursuit of more lose sight of the fact that God has given us enough. I think it's hard for us in American Christianity to really bring this home to understanding. And I I mean, let's just take a moment here and take this in. That in America, you spend more for one cup of coffee than nearly 2 billion people on the planet live on every day. 2 billion people in the world live on less than $4 a day. So if you stopped at Starbucks or, I mean, you're, wow, you're living up for five people if you stopped at Starbucks for coffee. You might notice I'm not a huge Starbucks fan. For those of you who are, I don't care. (laughs) We spend, right? So it's hard for us to think of the significance of what we have when we're living in the wealthiest nation in the world. We look at our challenges, and and I'm not making light of them. I know that our economy has shifted. There are a lot of things that have changed. There are a lot of families that are feeling the crunch of the economic shift and change. And, And what are we beginning to think? It's just not enough. It's not enough. But this reality that has to set in into our hearts, that what do you have? And God being able to say, what you have is enough if you just put it into my hands. How many of you feel like you just don't have enough time? How many of you feel like you just don't have enough money? How many of you feel like you, you know, you're, you're kind of talented, but not super talented, right? These things that we looked at time and time again, God, I just, it's just not quite enough to make anything happen from it. And God keeps looking at it and he says, if you'd put it into my hands, it would be enough. Once again, this comes back to a heart issue. It comes back to the heart issue because for us, we look at the concept of surrender in percentages, well, I'm mostly surrendered to God. I'm partially surrendered to God. This area of my life is surrendered to God. I've given myself, but, but God doesn't deal with us in these terms. God looks at our lives and he says, these are my two measurements. I either have all of you or I have none of you. I either have all of you or I have none of you. Now you can yell at me and say that you don't think that's fair. I didn't write the Bible, not my fault. God says, I either have all of you or have none of you. In fact, we can see this. Jesus made this very clear when he was speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 12. And he says this to them in verses 30 to 32. He says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Right here, he's making super clear. There's no in-between. You're either working for me or you're working against me. You're either with me or you're... He's like, there's no in-between. Then he goes on to say this, so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except, uh uh-oh, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven either in this world or in the world to come. Now, 
If we're reading through Scripture and there's one place where God says there's one thing that can't be forgiven, don't you think that maybe our ears ought to perk up just a little bit? Okay, God, what are you talking about? I want to get a couple things clear here. This is not talking about the idea of giving your life to God because we look at people who are hard-hearted. We look at people who are broken, Paul included, but Paul had a transformational moment where he came to God, got a, got a hold of his heart, a hold of his life, and he became a prominent leader in the early church. So it's not talking about those who have just continued to ignore God. It's not talking about people who have said, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. But it is pointing to something that is really germane to what we've been talking about in this series of first fruits. It's talking about your heart. It's talking about your heart. And here's the real part that's talking about. It's talking about hard hearts. In fact, we read in Scripture where there are multiple times where God hardens someone's heart. When, when Pharaoh and is holding the children of Israel and Moses and Aaron go to him, the Bible tells us point blank, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could keep showing his people his power. But a hard heart is something God looks at and he goes, this is a problem because I can't fix this. I can't forgive it. And the hard heart is the heart that hears and sees the things of God, that feels the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but just completely ignores it for a lifetime. That just says, you know, God, I'm going to give you what I can. God, I'm just going to give you what I want. God, I'm just going to give you what makes me comfortable. God, you can go this far, but no further. And it's interesting that Jesus would tie to this statement that you're either with me or you're against me. You're either working for me or you're working against me. There's no middle ground. There's no kind of a follower of Christ. There's no sort of surrendered. There's no partial submission. God says either I've got all of you or I've got none of you. This is the first fruit that matters most to the heart of God. Do I have your heart? We said last week, and it's true, Jesus told his disciples, there's going to come a day at the end of everything where people come and stand in front of me and they're going to say, but God, in your name, we ran great ministries. In your name, we cast out evil spirits. In your name, people were healed. In your name, and, they, and he just, and Jesus says, there's going to be a moment where I have to look those individuals in the eye and I'm going to have to say, Depart from me, because I never knew you. What's that mean? I never had your heart. You got really good at going through the motions. You even learned how to give of your time, talent, and resources to the level that's expected. But I never got your heart. I heard it put this way. We don't want to make, we do not want to miss heaven by 18 inches. That is the distance between knowing God here and knowing God here. A knowledge of God, an understanding of God, a comprehension of who he is, what he represents, but thinking of him solely through the terms of religion, thinking of him solely through the terms of a God that we must obey or else will be punished. God says, I want your heart. 
And listen, as these miraculous provisions make so evident to us, when we surrender our first fruits, when we surrender the elements of who we are and all that God desires, when we give that to him, small as it may seem in our eyes, God says, I can take that and I can bless you through it. I can bless the world through it. I can bless the world through your obedience. I can bless the world through your love for me. All of it coming back to that first fruit, which is our hearts. So I want to ask you this morning, does God have your heart? Does God have your heart? Not just your obedience, not just your compliance. Does God have your heart? Because I don't want to spend a life where I've gone through the motions, where I've learned how to be religious, to only one day stand before God and have him say, I didn't know you. We didn't have the closeness. You didn't surrender to me like you said you would. Church, when we do that, it changes everything about us. And that's the first fruit that God is most interested in. What do you have? Your heart. Give it to the Lord and let him do something awesome with it. Will you pray with me? God, the concept of forgiveness and mercy are just so huge to us. They're so far beyond our comprehension. The idea that there is mercy that abounds for us as you just patiently wait for us to fully understand and fully see you for who you are. To see you as the same God who has always been working and moving and dealing in your people's lives. The same God who desires to be known relationally. And Lord, there's heartbreak in the words of Jesus as he looks and he sees a world that would know who he is, but wouldn't know him. And God, I pray that it would not be said of any of us that we had a knowledge of God, but we denied the power. We had an understanding of who you were. Maybe we thought that you were a good man or a good prophet or a good teacher. We never truly entered into relationship with you. God, I know that you're desperate for the first fruits of our lives. It's our hearts. It's not just the stuff of who we are and what we can bring. It's closeness. It's friendship. It's companionship. That you paid a great price so that we could have. So God, I pray that you would just begin to stir in hearts in this room, not just in minds. Not winning people over with intellect or with good arguments. But Holy Spirit, would you begin to speak to hearts in this room? Would you begin to speak to hearts that are watching us online? Would you just begin to show them that you desire so much more than a religious understanding? You want their hearts. And that we would be a people who are truly surrendered to you, Jesus. As we're in prayer this morning, I just want to ask you if you're here, and maybe you know of yourself, I've, I've had more of a religious understanding of God than 
relational. And as I sit here, I know I, I don't want to miss eternity. I don't want to miss heaven by 18 inches because I only knew about God instead of knowing him personally. If that's you, I just want to ask you to slip up a hand because I want to pray for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to give God the first fruits of who I am. I want to give God the best of me. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask you to stand as we get ready to close in prayer together? Surrendering your heart is so much more than a prayer. It's the start. It's the beginning. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Surrendering our hearts is the beginning of relationship. Giving God the first fruits is the beginning of knowing Him. But it's that daily walk where every day from now on that we make the decision to say, God, I want to pursue you. I want to give you my heart. I want to surrender to you in every way imaginable. But I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in the, this confession of faith because the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts in that first fruit area that the Spirit of God raised him from the dead we will be saved and so I want to ask you to pray this with me as we pray together and to ask God to take hold of what truly belongs to him entering into relationship with him what do you have but your heart to give to the Lord so you pray this with me father in heaven thank you for your patience and your kindness to me as you've waited for the moment where I would surrender my heart. I give all of me to you. I surrender all that I am and all that I will ever be. Come into my heart. I desire relationship with the King of Heaven. In Jesus' name. God, I thank you that you are stirring in hearts and God, it's just the beginning. Would you keep stirring in hearts? Holy Spirit, would you keep nudging your people and reminding them of the great love that you have for them? Would you keep showing them that you died for more than religion, that you desire relationship with them? Would you reveal to them, no matter what they've experienced or been told in their lives, that they can know you personally? Draw close to you through reading your word, through praying, through spending time in worship, God, just in, in your presence, pursuing you. God, would you just speak that to them? Remind each of us, God, you're still changing hearts. You're the same God that you've always been. You're the same God that you'll always be. And so, God, I pray that you'll draw us to yourself as we give you the first fruits of who we are. Take the little that we have and use it for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.